There we go. Okay, so this is the story of John Wycliffe for Reformation Day. Now, I want you to see if you guys, and we'll see if anyone has any Latin speakers in the room. Nope, it does not want to work. Of course. Yeah, I don't know, maybe. Maybe bring, maybe I need that iPad. Yeah. That was dangerous. All right. Can anyone tell me this very famous Bible verse? Anyone tell me what this very famous Bible verse is? You know it. You all know it. It is John 3, 6. We've got a few Latin, okay, most of you. Ah, see, we have a Latin speaker. So what, what, what is the problem, Lynn? Why can most people not read that? They don't know Latin. And this is, of course, John 3, 16. Everyone knows it. But for most of you, you're like, I have no idea what that says. Or, or how about this one? Ah, see, a little close. Teaching, rebuke, and training in righteousness of the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16. Right? 2 Timothy 3, 16. Um, and, 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 and while some of you were able to figure it out, right, Lord, but it, it emphasizes the point, we need Bibles in English or in a language that we understand. Now, Aaron Valdezan, of course, is a great emphasis on why we need to learn Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic, and how that helps us study our Bibles great. And, and not every English translation is perfect. In fact, I think we who have studied the original languages will say every English translation is imperfect because it's really hard to translate things. But, but this book claims to be the very words of God, and that it equips us for every task we have to do as Christians. This is God's letter for you. Don't you want to be able to understand it in your heart language? Your first language, the language you dream in? Don't you want other people to understand that? And today, we are blessed to have hundreds of versions instantly available in your little smartphone device. You can pull it up and be like, say, I could read this same translation or the same verse in multiple translations. But that has not always been the case. Tomorrow, October 31st, is, of course, Halloween, All Hallows' Eve. But perhaps more importantly for history, it's Reformation Day, the day where Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg Church and set off just a complete change in the world. In Fox's Book of Martyrs, he writes about the time before the Reformation. He says, simple, uneducated people who had no knowledge of scripture were content to know only what their pastors told them, and their pastors took care to only teach what came from Rome, most of which was for the profit of their own orders, not the glory of Christ. John Wycliffe, seeing Christ's gospel defiled by the errors and inventions of these bishops and monks, decided to do what he could to remedy the situation and teach people the truth. They needed the Bible. And as we walk through this, I want us to just talk about John Wycliffe, the morning star of the revolution, and how so many people gave their literal lives so that you could have the Bible in your translation. This is more of a history lesson. We're going to learn stuff. We are going to turn to various passages. So have your Bibles ready. We're going to try and say, you know, here's the person's life, and then here's some lessons from the Bible we can glean from that as we walk through them. This man was called the Morning Star because he led. A hundred years before Martin Luther was alive, he started putting the seeds of ideas, which would lead to the Reformation, and ultimately blessed England and America with an acceptance of gospel preaching before 
it even came. Now, before we get there, we have to know the medieval world and the medieval church. We, we have to know the context of where he was born and what it was like. This is the world of that time, it is the 14th century. Uh, and shortly after his birth began the Hundred Year War between England and France. As is common, neighbors fight. And this is the time when Europe had many nations. All of them were claiming to be Christian, but they warred over various interests. They were fighting each other. The time of medieval empires was coming to an end. The kind of chokehold that the Roman Catholic Church had over the society was ending, and these nations were becoming more powerful. England, France, Switzerland, and the kings were like, they were taking power and giving it, as is the case with the Magna Carta, and they had to give some power away. But it's also the time of the infamous bubonic plague. You know, when a third of the population of Europe was killed in a few years. Actually, when Wycliffe was at Oxford University, a third of his classmates died from the bubonic plague. It was a time before smartphones, the internet, or even the printing press. Few people knew how to read and write, and few people did anything except just survive. They would eat, they would clean, they would die. And the next generation, that was it. Life was hard. And then a big change started to happen in the world we started to get cities. Cities started to form all over Europe, and as cities came about, people were able to move in, and they were able to acquire a little more wealth. They had a little more stability, and people started to learn about, hey, I can read, and people wanted to have the Bible in their hands. Some changes happening that God is providentially over, and not only did we have the world at the time, we had the Roman Catholic church, which is the only church in Europe. Um, In 325 AD, the emperor, Constantine, decided that he liked Christianity's influence, and he was going to reign as a Christian emperor, and so he revoked years of persecution, and he instead gave the bishop, or the pastor of Rome, who would eventually be known as the pope, a large mansion that used to belong to him, the emperor. He built three huge churches around it, creating what we call Vatican City now. And as often happens, when you add a lot of wealth and prosperity and government support behind institution, corruption comes. And so as the Vatican grew, the bishops in Rome started to claim, hey, we're better than all the other bishops out there. And we are, in fact, spiritual descendants of the Apostle Peter, who was the leader of the entire church. The word pope means father. We are the fathers of the church. Interesting. Jesus said to call no one father, but yes. And the the popes started to become less and less like pastors and more like emperors. They would issue decrees and call armies and threaten and and deal with conflict that happened. And and things got really, really weird in the 14th century. In the 14th century, there was this famous thing where um, the Pope and the French king are having a fight. So the Pope left Rome and set up his capital in Avignon, France, beginning what would later be called the Babylonian captivity. So during this time in the Babylonian captivity, it, it creates some conflict, so they want to go back to France, but the Pope in, Bab- in France doesn't want to go back to Italy, and so they create a new Pope, and we have this famous thing called the War of the Popes, where uh, there were th- literally three Popes at the same time, and a council said, oh no, we're going to elect a new Pope, so there's a fourth Pope, and who declared all the other Popes illegitimate, and he said that that council was illegitimate because only the Pope could make himself Pope, but he was put there by a council. It was very confusing. And if you ever talk to any Roman Catholic friends or family members or people, and they say, ah, yes, 
you know, the Pope has an unending line from Peter to them, ask them about the anti-popes in France. Ask them about the Babylon captivity and how do they explain this weird time in history. And, and it was a very, very difficult time. So much so that the French king was looking at the land that belonged to the Knights Templar. The Knights Templar, not just a thing of stories that we make, make myths about now, but they were a religious group, and they owned a bunch of land. And the Pope's like, ooh, I really like, or sorry, the king of France was like, I like their land. I want those churches. And so he said, the Pope, hey, you need to call those men heretics because they have done this, this, and this, and he made up a bunch of things. The Pope did it. He stole their land. Everyone was going, hey, wait a second. This doesn't make sense. God used all these problems, the world changing and the Roman Catholic Church looking like fools to bring about a time where people started to go, wait a second. I know that's what the Pope says. I know that's what the church leaders say. But what does the Bible say? Before this time, people would say that if you question the Pope, you would lead to your death and you would be sent to hell forever. How dare you question the church? But now people are going, wait a second. Maybe, maybe there's something to this. Maybe this, this Pope guy doesn't actually know exactly what he's talking about, right? And this teaches us how much God is in control of history. If you want to, you can turn your Bibles to Acts 17. Acts 17 Verse 24 through 26, we learn that God is in control of every moment in history. Acts 17, verse 24, Paul is addressing the people, and he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. Acts 17, verse 26, says that God has set the boundaries of each and every nation and people. God controls history. As Pastor Yuri was reading from Daniel earlier and how God was over Nebuchadnezzar. Isaiah 45, verse 6 through 7, says, The people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am Yahweh who does these things. Daniel 2, 21. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God controls and he controls kingdoms. So history helps us because sometimes we look at our, our world and we wonder, what is going on? How could this person be president, right? Or, or how could this person be governor or be city official or be literally the dictator of some country? And we know that God knows exactly what he is doing. And, and he uses bad times to prepare for what he is doing, to break people up so that they would see that they must trust in him. Who knows? He could be using our time and the difficulties that we are going through to wake us up and prepare us for what he is doing, to prepare us for a revival as existed during the time of the Reformation, or perhaps for the judgment in his return. We don't know, but it's been bad before. And back to our man, like everyone 
in the time of Europe, in those days, John is born and raised a Catholic. Secondly, John is born and raised a Catholic. He is born sometime around 1324 during the reign of King Edward III, when Marco Polo was setting out on his famous journey to the Far East. A little historical context there. Uh, Not much known known about his childhood. It is kind of unknown. He must have been fairly well off because he was able to be sent to Oxford around age 14. Um, And the very description of the man is before he had this wonderful beard. (laughs) Perhaps he was 13 or 16 years old at the time. And we read of him as being a man of slight build. His mind was fixed on achieving high honors, on this making his family back in Yorkshire proud. So he had a great burden to work hard and make his family proud. And he is, interestingly, known as having a complete lack of sense of humor. He, 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 he tried to make jokes, and it was recorded by people. Every single joke he made landed flat. He was horrible at telling jokes. And it was, he was, though incredibly smart, and made a name for himself as defending that the world was round. At the time, some crazy people started to argue the world was flat. It wasn't a big deal. But he would argue, like, it's midday here in England, so on the other side of the world, it must be midnight. Pretty reasonable. He, he would argue this with his friends. And then he came under the teaching of a man named Sir Thomas Bradwardine. Sir Thomas Bradwardine, the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time. Important leader. Sir Thomas really seemed to know Jesus. Unlike other Catholics who only talked about what popes and priests said, this man said, read your Bible. Read the word of God. And so he directed him to do so. And you know what John started to do? Study the scriptures. He read the scriptures because of his teacher. And John loved the scriptures more than all the other writings that he had access to because he believed these were the words of God. He wrote, What concern have the faithful with the writings of this sort unless they are deduced from the fountain of scripture? What do Christians care about anything unless it comes ultimately from the Bible? Any other source of finding God's expectations went against this water source and were poisoned. Anything else, any worldly philosophy that didn't come from the the wonderful source of the Bible was poison to him. And this led him to have very different views from those at the times. He loved the scriptures and he believed something called sola scriptura, which is an incredibly important part of the Reformation. Sola scriptura means scripture alone is the ultimate guide and authority for Christian belief and practice. The Bible only, scripture alone. And, and the scandals that he saw happening in the Roman Catholic Church actually encouraged him because he said the true church was in the body of those predestined to salvation. He started to see not everyone who claims to be a Christian is actually a Christian. In fact, like Jesus said, we know who they are by their fruits. Many leaders in the church were actually wolves in sheep's clothing. And his teachings very much pleased the British at the time, right? The the British king is not happy with the Pope right now because the Pope is in the hands of the French king. And the British and the French have been at a war for 100 years. So, like, hmm, the British king is like, wait a second. You're saying that I don't have to listen to the Pope? I like this. And John made compelling arguments that God is truly king over all and only the righteous could properly rule. Since the Pope was not living righteously, he did not have to be obeyed. 
Instead, if the church was godly, it would care less about taxes and more about giving to the poor. And the king loved this so much. He loved this so much, he sent him to France to go and speak and make arguments with the Roman Catholics there. And he saw past a lot of the veneer of the church. The, the, the church would tell people that they were holy men. But he got to interact with the Pope and his advisors. And he saw depravity and corruption that the church had sunken into. He would later say of the Bishop of Rome that he was, oh, we're not there yet, that he was the Antichrist, the proud, worldly priest of Rome and the most cursed of all pickpockets. He called the Pope the most cursed of all pickpockets, right? We'll get there in a second. But he had other important beliefs. He opposed the papacy and said that we shouldn't, the Pope is not the head of the church. Only Christ is the head of the church. That's what the Bible says. He says, the Bible says that clergy, pastors, can marry, something that was forbidden at the time. He denied what's called baptismal regeneration that says baptism, when you put in the water, you become a Christian. That saves you. He opposed transubstantiation, which says that the, the elements in the mass or in communion are the actual body and blood of Christ. And he opposed the crusades. He imposed indulgences. He opposed religious um, orders. And he taught that, that those who followed Christ and were teachers of the church should not live in extreme wealth versus the extreme poverty of the people. He says that pastors should live like their people. And not surprisingly, as all these things came about, his doctrines upset some people. It was said of John Wycliffe that he wasn't very diplomatic or winsome. His statements were very blunt and to the point, and he called out the popes very clearly on their being secular and obsessed with money and power. Which, if you are obsessed with money and power and someone tells you you're obsessed with money and power, you get very angry at them, right? So, on May 1377, Pope Gregory XI issued five bulls against him, denouncing his theories and calling for his arrest. The Pope wrote, "'Hath gone to such a pitch of detestable folly. "'He feareth not to teach and publicly preach, "'or rather to vomit out of the filthy dungeon of his breast "'certain erroneous and false propositions and conclusions, "'savoring even of heretical pravity, "'tending to weaken and overthrow the status of the whole church "'and even the secular government.'" So did the Pope have a good view of John Wycliffe? No. I love that line. Like, he wants to vomit out of the filthy dungeon of his breast. Like, that's the Pope's view of him for calling him out. Even today, to threaten the Pope is to threaten the whole of the Roman Catholic Church. A slight image that comes from Roman Catholic apologists. See, they have said that the traditions of the church are equal with the writings of Scripture. So they both come from the same place, and they are in parallel, equal with one another. We have the written word, which is the infallible tradition in Scripture, and we have the infallible tradition that's passed down by the Roman Catholic Church. So if you go against what the church says, you are going against what the Bible says. One modern-day Catholic apologist says, the church gives us her tradition like a mother giving a child hand-me-down clothing that has already been worn by man, by, um, by many older sister and brothers. But unlike any earthly clothing, this clothing is indestructible because it's not made of wool or cotton, but is truth. Sadly, when you lift up the arms of that hand-me-down clothing. You see it's full of holes and problems. 
because this clothing is made by man and is full of errors. And in John Wycliffe's day and in our day too, you can point and say, I hear you. I have no anger towards you, my Roman Catholic friend, but your tradition is full of lies and it's hurting you and it's hurting other people. Now, the Pope said, John Wycliffe is vomiting from his chest, right? What do you think John's response was? Oh, he's very strong indeed. As John studies the scriptures, there you go, the Pope responded to him. And let me see if I have his quote. Ah, here it is. Here's his quote. I profess and claim by the grace of God, a sound, that is a true and orthodox Christian, and while there is breath in my body, I will speak forth and defend the law of it. I am ready to defend my convictions even unto death. In these, my conclusions, I have followed the sacred scriptures and the holy doctors. And if my conclusions can be proved to be opposed to the faith, willingly, I will retract them. I deny that the Pope has any right to political dominion, that he has any perpetual civil dominion that he can qualify or disqualify simply by his bulls. You remember, this was huge. People died for less than this. Remember, people believed in those days that the Pope had the power of excommunication. That would be like to kick someone out of the church. And if you were kicked out of the church, where would you go? Hell. Yet this man stands upon the Bible and says, if you can prove me that I am wrong according to the Bible, I will retract. But if not, I will stand. I I, I don't know about you guys. I went to a public school for most of my life. I was K through college in public school, interacting with people. I I still have family members and friends who are unbelievers. And at times, I was really scared about looking dumb in front of my friends or my teachers or my professors in school. I, I, I was concerned about getting a bad grade for standing up in my evolutionary classes as I took sciences in the world. And I was like, oh man, if I, if I do this, am I going to get a bad grade? Like that was nothing. John was risking his life and he knew God would not let him down. God granted him protection because the queen mother really liked John. And so the Pope never got an answer to his calls for arrest. But it still cost him. A lot of his family were Roman Catholics. And they said, we we can't, you're, you're not our son anymore. We can't know you because you have turned against the Holy Father himself. He found Jesus' words to be very true. In Matthew 10, 35 and 36, Jesus said, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. But he found great support from his fellow believers. As Jesus said, Matthew 10, Matthew 19, 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children, or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Matthew 19, 29. May, may we remember and take boldness? I, 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 there could be a great cost. There's a big talk right now in America about needing to have a theology of being fired. Are we willing to lose our jobs even because we will not succumb to the lies of the world. We're going to preach the truth. We're going to believe the truth. We're going to be part of, people have been fired for just being part of Bible-believing churches, right? So John's words, may we hear him, what he says is his marching orders. These are the marching orders. Prove all by the word of God. Measure all by the measure of the Bible. Compare all with the standard of the Bible. Weigh all in the balances of the Bible. Examine all in the light of the Bible. Test all. 
in the crucible of the Bible, that which cannot abide the fire of the Bible, reject, refuse, repudiate, and cast away. This is the flag which he nailed to the mast. May it never be lowered. We need to have the same kind of boldness as John did because we trust in his word. Um, perhaps as a way of application, we'll, we'll continue to come back to this. To get there, you know what you have to actually do? Read the Bible. <laughs> know what it says. As, as 1 Peter 2 verse 2 says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word that you may grow up into salvation. I want to become strong and withstand what's going on? Read God's word. See, the Roman Catholic Church was telling Christians at the time, you're spiritual babies. Milk even, it's, it's just too complicated and hard for you. Instead, they'd say, I'm sorry for the image, but this is, what they was, but this is basically what they were doing. Like, all right, we're going to take the steak we're going to chew it up for you. Then we're going to spit it into a blender and then we're going to give it to you through a feeding tube. Does anyone want that? No. Like, but that's how they were saying that. That's basically what they're like. You can't understand the Bible. Even today, they say, well, you can't understand the Bible without us telling you. And we have to instead see, as Psalm 119 lays out, the Bible is the satisfaction for our spiritual hungers. Don't be satisfied with just you know, even reading a good devotional that has one little Bible verse and a bunch of words of man. Read the Bible. We don't have people trying to keep us from our Bibles today, but, but the world does try and keep us from our Bibles, doesn't it? With distraction, with worries, with other ideas that say, this is so outdated. You could think of many others. Our own sinful selves sometimes tries to keep us from God's word. John was bold because he tested everything against God's word. But then, with that love of God's word, John began to do the unthinkable of the time. John began to translate the scriptures. What? Now, this seems crazy because today, of course, like I said, we have many translations. But as early as 1374, he was about 45 years old, he began to translate the Latin Bible into English. He didn't really understand Greek or Hebrew at the time. He wasn't taught it. He didn't have access to it, but he translated the Latin Bible into the language of the English people. And this was completely forbidden. Let's see, do I have it here? He starts the Bible. Nope, I don't have that part. Sorry, I'll, you have to listen to it. Um, in the decree of Telus in 1229 AD, so it's been around for a long time, the decree of the Council of Telus says, we prohibit that the laity should be permitted to have the books of the Old or New Testament. And we strictly forbid having any translation of these books. Roman Catholic law said, normal people can't have the Bible and never translate it. But John understood that the Bible claims to be sufficient for every believer's needs. 2 Timothy 3.15 says, From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Psalm 119 verse 1 Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of Yahweh. Blameless is those who walk according to the Bible. Again, in those days, people were terrified. 
a third of the population had just died. They're hearing rumors of their kings fighting their religious leaders. People are struggling, and they are like, we cannot control the world. The, the corruption of the Catholic Church made people say, we can't con- trust God. And so what does he do but say, you can trust and understand the Bible? See, this hard-fought, Bible, hard-fought battle blesses us immensely. We just have to remember that we have the Bible, and we can know what God expects from us because of it. We can look in the Bible, and if someone tells you, well, here's what the Christian should do or be, you can say, well, but what does the Bible say? What do I have to be? Wayne Grudem, the systematic theologian, pastor, seminary professor, says the sufficiency of scriptures should encourage us as we try to discover what God would have us to think or do in any situation. The sufficiency of Scripture reminds us that nothing is sin that is not forbidden by Scripture, by command or implication. To walk in the Lord is to be blameless. See, the Roman Catholic Church, it bound people. It it heaped expectation upon expectation. Not only did you have to live a good life, you had to pay lots of money to be forgiven, right? It hurt people. So John didn't just start to translate the Bible. He translated it. Oh, there's the passage. And then John begins to get people to teach the Bible. No, we're not there yet. So he begins to get people, he translates it, then gets people to start preaching it. And and he took the English Bible and he put it in the hands of lay people, non-priests, and said, go, speak the truth. And these people became known as lollards because the word comes from a Latin word, which means weak mumblers. They're like, oh, these people are so pathetic. They can't really preach. But, but they believed that the Bible belonged to the people and should be returned to them. People just like you could have the Bible. It can go out and preach the Bible. And there were large numbers of nobility among them, and they tried to make a parliamentary change to change the laws about heresy, but most of them sadly recanted when the church cracked down on them. But they made England ready for the Reformation. Unlike countries like France, which cracked down on the Reformation and killed people, England heard the Bible. They, they knew the Bible before. And so when people started preaching the Bible during the time of the Reformation, they're like, oh, wait a second, this sounds like what my parents taught me. And this brings up an important Reformation doctrine, the priesthood of all believers. He says in 1 Peter 2, 9, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Every one of us gets to call out others. So being young or old doesn't make you a second-class Christian. The Great Commission is for all of us to be disciples who make other disciples for Jesus Christ. If you are saved and you have a Bible, you know what you can do? Teach others what the Bible says. Now, this did not come without cost. In 1382, his school turned on him. They kicked him out and said, you cannot be teaching here anymore. His response was, the truth shall prevail. And he walked out on them. He gets people, like I said, to preach the gospel. Oh yeah, I gotta get a picture. I didn't have this. Here's the picture of the Lollards going about preaching in various places, in pubs, in farmhouses, wherever they could because the priesthood of all believers. Now, John wasn't perfect. 
in our history and lessons of people, let's remember these people are not perfect. He believed in some weird things, like purgatory. He said that there is the church triumphant in heaven, which includes the angels, the church militant on earth, and the church dormant in purgatory. There was this idea at the time that if you died and you weren't really good enough, you would go to purgatory, which is like an in-between place between earth and heaven, and you'd have to like burn off the rest of your sins. And the Roman Catholic Church used this during the time of Martin Luther to say, oh, pay us some money and we'll get your family out of purgatory faster. And, and this belief carried on even with John at the time. He was in the process of reforming. He didn't get to the full understanding that we have of justification by faith alone until later that Luther would promote. When you look through history, you're going to find all kinds of people. You're like, I love this guy, but he had a really weird view. Or like, this, this is like wrong. Don't be surprised. And maybe we take encouragement to us too, that in 500 years, 600 years, people might look back at us and go, wow, we really love the 21st century American church, but they were really messed up in this area. Hey, God is patient with us, right? Now, John eventually died, and he used, is used after his death. On December 31st, 1384, he dies of a stroke. The Roman Catholic Church never got him. But he was so hated by them, so hated for them, that in 1415, the Council of Constance declared him a heretic, and they dug up his dead body, burned his remains, and poured those remains into the river, all because, I quote, he helpeth Christian men to study the gospel in that tongue to which they know best Christ sentence. Like, they were not hiding what they were upset about. Like anyone who said, oh, the Roman Catholic Church, it was just a disagreement about like kind of nuanced theology. No, no, it was very clear what the issue was. He taught people in their own language. And these guys didn't like that. They put the bones on trial. They put the bones on trial and, they, and it wasn't enough just to even burn them, like I said. They had to drown them afterwards. Well, he was dead at that point. Oh, when he died, um, he was in his... They don't know exactly when he was born. That's a great question. Um, so it was, he, he died, we know for sure he died in 1384. And what year was he born again? I should know this. Um, he was born in 1324, around there. So about 60 years, which is a pretty good life in those days, especially, Right? So again, and, and the fact that he was able to live that long and not be able for that the Roman Catholic Church to get him was the grace of God, right? So they tried to stop his message, right? They hated him so much, but it didn't even work. One of the men who read his writings and cared about it was John or Jean Hus. John Huss was a man in Bohemia. He too preached the Bible alone, salvation by grace alone, that Christ was alone, was the head of the church, and he was burned at the stake for it. When he was at that stake being burned, the legend is, and there's probably some truth to it, he said, today you cook a goose, derived from his name, Huss. But in a hundred years, a swan will rise to whom you will not be able to silence. And Luther's family name and issue is Swan. So perhaps he knew something, perhaps just a story that came about, but he was right. Because about a hundred years later, after the death of John Huss, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the wall and kicked off this great change that the Roman Catholic Church was not able to stop 
and a fire lit, and people began to say, what does the word of God say? Sometimes it's good to look to the past so we can be encouraged for the future. Like when we look at a man like John Wycliffe, and, and I, we could even go in more details about his personal life and the righteousness that exists there, but his own issues. He's not perfect, but he had a very strong conviction to not be quiet when the scriptures spoke. And he had a strong conviction that that wasn't just for him, that was for everybody. He died not seeing a lot of success, really. Of his many lollards, most of them, when the church cracked down, abandoned him. And he was left alone, riding away, trying to do things on his own. But God used his influence to prepare the biggest change in the Western world, the Reformation. Not only that, course. Wycliffe Bible translators have been named after him. Today, continually, Aaron Valzan can testify to the importance of Bible translation still going on today, of how we need the Bible in people's languages. And perhaps we need to most of all appreciate our Bibles and what it took to get them. So do me a favor, if you have your Bible, just pick it up for a second think about it, right? And it's different sizes and different weights. And famously, and you can see a picture of it on the bottom of your sheet there, this is a Bible found during the reign of Bloody Mary with the blood of what they believe is a martyr splattered on its pages. Like today in the morning, Tomorrow, as you try and read your Bible and you're tired and you're sleepy and you're going, ah, is it really worth it? Think, what did it take for me to have this book? And may we also be just as bold, right? Now, that's hard. Not easy to do. By the grace of God, we too can do so. Um, let me just ask quickly, as you guys think about it, and we can see on the bottom there, how can we treasure our Bibles more? I want to open this up to thoughts. What are ways that we can do in our own hearts or in the lives of others to see the Bible as precious as it is? What do you guys think? How do we treasure the Bible more? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No. So practically, I want to I be, be a reader of the Bible. How do I go about making that important in my life? Mm-hmm. Make, it, make it my top priority. Right? Yeah. Memorize it. Yeah. Even when it's super hard. Like, if you've got to take a driver's test, and they're going to tell you, you got to answer these questions. And you're like, oh, man, I, I'm not very good at memorizing. But you will take the time to memorize those answers. You can pass that test. So you can have the privilege of driving, right? The Bible is worth memorizing. Maybe slowly. Maybe not as much as other people. Other ways. Read, read other people who love the Bible. Don't get distracted by people who think the Bible is junk. Like, read the people who love the Bible. Yeah, Naya. That is right. Amen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let other people know. You want to, sometimes we, like, we can read the Bible together. It's okay. And you can let that be spread and your, your love for the Bible seen by others. Part of your daily conversation. 
Yeah. We have a ton of Bibles. If everyone who wants any, just go underneath into the um, cabinet over here, grab some, hand them out to people, say you value them. Any other thoughts on John's life? Lessons we should learn in what we should believe or what we should do? Expect opposition. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As Peter says, don't be surprised when the fiery trials come against you as if some unexpected thing. But rejoice so far as you suffer along with your Savior. Well, thank you guys for listening and hearing a little bit about why the Bible is so worthwhile. Um, let me pray, and then um, I have some candy if anyone wants to answer some questions for me, kiddos, or kids at heart. Um, let me pray, and then you can help us pack up. God in heaven, thank you so much for this time, and we pray that we might enjoy our fellowship and meal together as we enter this day of just remembering the Reformation 505 years ago. May we be thankful for the blessing you have given us, and Lord, the fact that we have this Bible. It was hard fought. Thank you, Lord, for people who pushed for the translation of it into our language. May we rejoice over the many blessings you have given us in this word for the praise of your glorious name, Jesus Christ. Amen.